0: Hi, I'm Vicki Aldis with the Mail Tribune newspaper in Oregon. In episode two of The Protectors, detectives and prosecutors told us about kids who inspire them. In this episode, they talk about misconceptions the public has about cases with child victims. Some of those misconceptions are about the kids themselves, and some are about the kinds of people who can commit these crimes. Movies and TV shows about crime have always been popular. Lately, there's been a boom in shows about forensic science. There's Forensic Files. There's CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, and its various spin-offs, like CSI Miami. In these shows, forensic scientists find DNA, test bullets in ballistics labs, and hack computers to find evidence. The popularity of forensic science shows has created something people in law enforcement call the CSI effect. Prosecutor Terry Smith-Norton says some people think that every case comes with a load
1: of forensic evidence. Um, what would be nice, I think, is um, if people realize that, um, I guess, the reality of, of trials that we deal with, it, it's not like TV, um, it's not CSI, and I think we struggle against that effect Um because jurors expect now that uh, I've had in jury selection, sure say that they didn't think they could convict unless you had video of the actual crime occurring. But that's not gonna happen in sexual abuse. Um, Generally, they are delayed disclosures. We're not gonna have a lot of uh, DNA evidence if, I mean, it's a rare case where we have that. And so it would, I think it would be nice if, if, We could educate the public in some way to realize that and that the way that the law is structured and and we go through this with jurors is that there's a jury instruction that says the testimony of any witness that you believe is sufficient to resolve any fact that's in dispute at the trial. But I think because our our society is more uh, technologically centered and that's what jurors expect, especially when they watch TV, that it's very hard um, to get convictions in these cases because, you know, the defense can get up there and say, well, you know, you you have to have doubt. This is a, he said, she said, you know, how can you make a decision? But we do that every day in our lives. I mean, we have, we have people telling us two different things and we have to use what we know, what skills we've developed as adults to decide, you know, what's more credible. We do it all the time and, and that's what they have to do in court. And I don't think people realize that. I think they're wanting us to have the video and the DNA. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a frustration, and, and that's a difficulty doing this caseload, is that we rarely have those things. Detective Diane Sandler says she also sees the CSI
2: effect. Um, I believe that there's just, in our society, um, we, ha- we are now in a CSI society. Where evidence is king, you need DNA evidence, and now electronic evidence. Everybody has a phone. And so juries want to believe that there is a mountain of evidence that exists. And a lot of times in this caseload, what exists is the victim's statement. This is what happened to me. They come forward years after the fact, so DNA usually isn't a piece of the case. Um, And other types of evidence, just aren't there. So we do have a couple tricks, if you will, up our sleeves that we do use. um, And those are things that I just can't share with you because I don't want perpetrators to know what we do to to glean evidence and to make our cases stronger.
0: That doesn't mean detectives don't look for other ways to corroborate a victim's story. A kid might be able to describe an intimate detail of a sexual abuser's body. A kid might be able to describe a specific blanket or a bedroom where the abuse occurred. There might be evidence on a perpetrator's phone or computer. In physical abuse cases, detectives can take photographs of burns, bruises, and other injuries. A medical exam and rape kit might reveal semen or other DNA sources. Doctors might find broken bones, internal injuries, or bleeding in the brain. Prosecutors say juries also have expectations about how kids will act on the witness stand. They should look scared. They should cry. But Prosecutor Zori Cook says there's usually a long gap between when abuse happened when a case goes to trial.
3: I I tell my juries now I have no idea how this child is going to react. I don't know if if they're going to come in and just be resigned and stone-faced and they've dealt with this for three years now. It is what it is. If they're going to cry, if they're going to be angry, if they're going to laugh, I have no idea. I think there's an expectation of everyone that a victim will act like a victim, whatever that means, quote-unquote. Or a victim will cry, a victim will be upset, but if a child isn't upset or isn't crying, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it's a very adult idea to put on a child. So knowing that kids are different, that they don't handle things as adults would, that doesn't mean they're not credible, it just means that this is a different kind of situation.
0: Detective Steve Bowen agrees kids don't always act like people expect them to act. They usually live with the abuse for a while before they tell anyone. Sometimes for years, sometimes
2: forever.
4: Most of our cases are delayed disclosures. Um, kids don't talk right away, and even adults don't talk about it right away. Immediately from when this happens, the first instincts almost everybody wants to do is like, I just want like this to go away, I don't want to deal with it. This is like, comp- I did not want this to happen. I just want things to go back to normal and they try as hard as they can to go back to normal and try to do the things that they probably wouldn't, what a normal person wouldn't think they would be doing. But they're trying to get back to that normalcy which will never be there, but they're trying so hard to get there. So the general public think, oh, just immediately once they are victimized, they, a person will come forward. When statistics have showed, majority of kids do not come forward.
0: Detective Bowen says kids rarely tell the whole story when they first disclose abuse.
4: And then a lot of times, um, the public will automatically come to assume that a child isn't being truthful when they've come out with more information down the road. But the m- majority of kids come forward and say, hey, this happened to me, to test the waters to see what kind of reaction they're going to get. Are they going to get supported? Are they going to be like believed or not? And they will start with some minor stuff just to see what happens. And then once they notice that they're being supportive, then kids will come forward with more information. Prosecutor Zori Cook also says kids
0: tell their story in bits and pieces. It's something she wishes the public would realize.
3: That it is a process, that it's not, I go to my mom one day as a child and say, Mom, my offender did all of these things to me and I'm going to give you a great linear narration of every single incident and how it happened and what was different and what was not. That's not how it happens. It's usually a child who's either knows that what's going on is wrong and immediately discloses, or it's years later, and they're tired of the abuse. And so people say things like, well, why did you put up with it for that long? Why didn't you tell immediately? Well, I mean, look at adults. Adults who are sexually assaulted or physically assaulted don't immediately report either.
0: Detective Steve Bowen says people don't understand how the average kid or adult reacts to sexual assault.
4: And a lot of all people say, oh, well, if that's going to happen, they're going to fight back. Um, And that statistics show that's not true as well. The majority, I think it's over 70% of people that are victimized, um, they freeze.
0: Detective Bowen says the instinct to freeze often kicks in automatically during threatening situations. Even police officers have to be trained how to react and take action when faced with danger. He says kids and adults aren't trained how to fight back when they're being sexually assaulted. It's just not something we do.
4: And we don't train. I mean, let's be honest. Why would we train adults or kids? Okay, let's train on what you're going to do if you're going to be sexually assaulted. What would you do to make that a quicker thing to say, no, stop. When the majority of the time you don't get that.
0: When we do warn kids to watch out for danger, we think about the stranger in a van who grabs a kid from a bus stop or the creepy guy offering a piece of candy. But prosecutor Zori Cook says we're usually looking in the wrong place.
3: You know, everybody talks about stranger danger. If we're talking about protecting kids, it's not so much stranger danger. It's, you know, the uncle, the brother. It's, it's people that you know. Um, if you want to be really cognizant of child abuse, it's in your inner circle. And so if somebody comes to you, if a child comes to you and says, you know, neighbor or friend, somebody did something weird. Or if they're acting strange, there's probably a reason. Um, don't just discount your child because you don't want to believe that bad things happen because they do.
0: Movies and TV have taught us that bad people look bad. They're sinister. They look mean. But prosecutor Terry Smith Norton says people who seem good might have secrets. Again and again, she sees a perpetrator supporter show up in court.
1: I, it would be nice, in my view, if people would realize that just because you know Bob, and Bob seems like a wonderful guy, um, you may not know all of the sides of Bob, And if a small child is saying that he's done something, you really need to give that, um, you you need to give that its due. And it Mm -hmm. frustrates me, especially in the cases where you'll have, let's say, uh, you know, a group like in the the school community or in a church community. They'll just pack the rows in support of that person, but they have no idea what happened in that room. And I guess it always sort of amazes me. I mean... I think that I would probably hesitate before Mm -hmm. I rallied around that person. I mean, it's their right, but I think people need to realize that it can be the guy who seems really nice. And part of the reason he's successful in gaining access to other people's children is that he's really nice. And they're very adept at manipulating and and, um, giving off that perception so that they can be a trusted person in a child's life. And so I, th- I think people need to, to realize that. Prosecutor Zori Cook says people are quick to jump to an accused person's defense.
3: There's no element in the crimes that we charge that says you have to be a bad person. And good people do bad things, bad people do good things. It mm-hmm. doesn't, it, there's no, this person is a sex offender, this person is is a child abuser, it's not like that. And I think Terry hit it on the head. You know, they're, maybe stop and support whatever the disclosure is and work through it instead of automatically saying no there's no way. There's no way that teacher could have done that. There's no way my priest could have done that. There, there is. We see it literally every day. So maybe support a disclosure and don't make that judgment until you have some, the facts.
0: Detective Diane Sadler says perpetrators often seem trustworthy. People who like the accused person don't want to think they misjudged the person so completely.
2: I think a lot of people are very vested in the outcomes of these trials. The people that have befriended the perpetrator maybe years prior, because most of the perpetrators that I have dealt with are what prior to trial we would have called pillars of the community, because it does cross all ages and races and um, monetary income. Uh, so usually, these the people that have perpetrated are people who we have put a lot of trust in, and it seems like if even at a sentencing, to be able to say I don't believe this happened. It's maybe an ignorance or it's a, a protective mechanism to tell somebody you didn't have a bad picker. this person actually is okay, and that's just not the case. We know that perpetrators are seemingly really good people. Um, I have arrested pastors. I've arrested police officers this affects everyone. And so I've that's why I told you in the beginning of this that I'm not very good at trusting people. And unfortunately, it's it's because when you put too much trust in someone the boundaries then become blurred and they have access to our most vulnerable population, the kids.
0: Detective Sandler says perpetrators target kids who are vulnerable.
2: What I see, um, and it's not across the board, but in the majority of cases, is that there is an outpouring of support for the suspect in a case and very little support for the victim in a case, which sets up the ideal or the perfect storm, if you will, because Perpetrators seek out kids that they believe are, or that they think will not be believed. And so it just makes sense then that if they are believed by law enforcement and we go forward with a criminal case and the perpetrator is charged and then there's an attempt to be brought to justice through a trial, um, that kid still is the kid that, the perpetrator felt wouldn't be believed or supported. And that plays out. I can't tell you how many sentencings I've been to where half of the courtroom is full of people that stand up for and love the suspect in the case. And the victim sits with one friend or, or one relative on the other side. And that's sad to see.
0: One thing we've noticed at the newspaper is that domestic violence cases involving adults outnumber child abuse cases. That seems strange, especially since kids are so small and vulnerable. I asked Detective Sandler why
2: relatively few child abuse cases show up in court. Well laws are different for adults versus children. There's a mandatory arrest law when adults get injured in an altercation with their loved ones, with the people that they live with. That's not the case. There's not a mandatory arrest law regarding children. So if a child is injured, if we can actually see visible injury, um, most of the time those cases are looked at as a parent disciplining their child and in the state of Oregon, parents have the right to discipline their child. Now, the question that's posed to judges and juries is was this overdiscipline or was this too much? Um, I've had children that have had bruising from the top of their shoulders all the way down their backside and thought that would have been a great case and overdiscipline to the point of an assault. Um, But the jury didn't think so. It might seem counterintuitive, but sexual
0: abuse is sometimes easier to prove in court than physical abuse.
2: Detective Sandler explains that. So I think um, physical abuse cases, I think, are much more difficult to prove than child sex abuse cases. Because the majority of child sex abuse cases have to do with age. And there's no denying that. So if a child is under the age of 12 and you have a 50-year-old having sex with an 11-year-old, we can't say whether or not that's um, not right or right. It's against the law. There's no debating that. When you have a child that has bruises, um, it's the exact opposite people have to say, well, is that actually abuse? Or was that a parent um, legally disciplining their child for something that they'd done? Detective Sandler says it's important to get kids to honestly describe the pain they felt from injuries. And for children, that can be a real scary place to be because they want to minimize what the perpetrator has done because we know in all child abuse cases, whether it's sexual or physical, Um, the perpetrators are people that they love and care about and usually people that have direct control over the child. They're living in their house. They feed them their meals. They buy them their school clothes. And so the child will come in, and we have to remember the child still loves this person. That's not gone. So to be able to talk about an assault, and not minimize can be very difficult. Because children also wanna be strong. They wanna go in and say, well, that really didn't hurt. But we need a child to say that it hurt. And there was substantial pain, not just that it hurt for a couple minutes and never hurt again. But we know um, from a child welfare perspective that kids are affected by that, sometimes forever. Um, Not the bruising itself. With the emotional bruising that takes place.
0: Prosecutors and detectives say the public has a lot of misconceptions about why some cases go to trial and why others end with a plea agreement. When a kid is severely injured and there's a mountain of evidence, an accused person might accept a plea offer, even if the offer is a years-long prison sentence. Or the person might decide to roll the dice and go to trial. Detective Diane Sandler says the egregious cases often don't go to trial, but defense attorneys might recommend their clients fight if a case
2: is in the gray area between discipline and abuse. Uh, The cases that go to trial are going to be the difficult cases. The ones where, you know, a good defense might be able to say, we feel like this was discipline, and we can prove that in court and you know everybody that's sitting in that jury box has a history and they all are sitting there thinking wow could that have been me i've spanked my child could that be me and so it really then becomes a a tipping point is there enough bruising is there enough injury Prosecutors sometimes get a bad rap for offering
0: plea deals. But saving an emotionally fragile child from going through a grueling trial can be important. Or, if there isn't much forensic evidence, getting a person to enter a guilty plea is better than nothing. Prosecutor Terry Smith Norton says making a plea offer isn't a light decision.
1: What I'd like people to understand is that we put a lot of time and thought into these cases. We don't make any kind of offer without the input of the families, of the children. And um, we have to discuss on these cases, these offers with the district attorney in our county. And sometimes um, a plea bargain is made because we realize that this is going to be a really hard case to prevail on, and we'd rather come out with um, holding that person accountable on some level, that they register as a sex offender, that they get some time, that they're asked to do treatment. Um, You know, in the perfect world, we'd get the maximum sentence, but we're not dealing with, with the perfect world. We're dealing with the system that we have. And so I guess... Um, these these offers are not made because we're lazy or afraid to go to trial but we're taking into account all of the factors that we have trying to assess the case and we don't do that lightly. Ultimately, Detective Diane Sandler says police and prosecutors can't fight
0: child abuse on their own. Sure, most states have mandatory reporter laws. Teachers, doctors, and other professionals have to report suspected physical or sexual abuse of kids but Detective Sandler wants everyone to take responsibility. If you see something, say something. Act like a mandatory
2: reporter. Um, It's my hope that by the end of my career, everybody's a mandatory reporter. You see a kid that something's just not right, that you phone that in. And let the professionals sort through it and figure out if it's true or not true or if it needs to be investigated. But if there is just an inkling, reach out, and hopefully that starts at least some kind of documented paper trail But something might not be right in that particular household. We'd like to thank the detectives and prosecutors who opened up to us about their jobs. Mail Tribune reporter Vicki Aldis and web editor Ryan File conducted the interviews for this series. Vicki wrote the podcast scripts. Ryan did the audio recording and edited together the audio interviews, narration, and music. Mail Tribune page designer Brian Fitzgerald created the podcast illustration for this series. Mail Tribune photographer Andy Atkinson shot the photos for the newspaper article version of the series. Mail Tribune editor Kathy Noah edited the newspaper articles. Vicki Aldis wrote the newspaper articles for that series. You can see all of those installments at mailtribune.com.